Welcome to the PCTR Podcast. I'm Robbie Itterberg, Senior Pastor. I want to thank you for listening today. We hope that you hear from God and that this podcast encourages you in your faith journey. You can connect with us on social at facebook.com slash PCTRNJ or our Instagram handle, PCTRNJ. Or you can find more information or resources at PCTR.org. Have a great day. Peace. Well, as we're moving into the message tonight, I'm wondering, have you ever spent a lot of time doing something only to find out that it was a total waste? Yeah, so when I was moving from Austin, Texas to Seattle, Washington, some of you may have heard this story, but I, we had two cars and we needed to move them. And so Abby flew ahead. She, we had two little kids at the time. And so I drove the first of our cars the many, many hours. It's like 30 some hours from Austin to Seattle with a friend of mine. And then I flew back to Austin to drive the second car by myself and thinking, okay, we've just done this. No problem. It's easy. You take I-35 north out of Austin. You take it up. I-70 It goes east and west. It'll take you right into Denver where I was going to stay with my family and then I'd head on to Seattle. And so I head out on the road and I'm driving along. I get through Texas and Oklahoma and up into Kansas and I'm driving along and I see this sign that says I-135 to Salina, Kansas. And I keep driving and just kind of go, hmm, something about that sign. Eh, whatever. I'm just going to keep going. And I know that I-35 will eventually hit I-70. Well, here's my problem. In Wichita, I-35 goes strongly northeast, whereas I-135 would have gone due north and hit I-70. So if I had gone that way, it would have taken me about an hour and 15 minutes or so to get from Wichita to Salina, Kansas. By going the way I went, I went three and a half hours to Topeka and then all the way back to Salina. And I just, I was about an hour into it when I realized, oh man, I can't go back. I just have to keep going forward. Right, and obviously I can't get those hours back. That was, I wasted uh, over two hours on this, you know, totally off direction trip. Now here's the thing, that's fine for a road trip, makes for a good story, but we can also spend so much of our life wasting not just hours, but years. And we can do it in so many ways. And we're going to jump into that this evening as we're continuing our sermon series that we've been in for a little while that we're calling Just Like Us, Ordinary People Changing the World. This is a series looking at the 12 apostles, those 12 men that Jesus called to be with him, and then ultimately he sent them out. These, these guys were not special really in any way other than that Jesus called them. That's what made them special. They were really ordinary, uneducated, not particularly powerful men, but Jesus called them to be with him and then sent them out, empowered them by his Holy Spirit and with the gospel to then go out and change the world. And we know that they changed the world because we're here today. And God continues to do that. Call us ordinary people to be with him, to be empowered by him, to go out with his gospel to change the world. And so tonight, 
we're going to think about how do we not waste the life, the time that we've been given, that we can live for what's worth living for. So we're going to jump into Luke chapter 6. If you'd like, follow along on the screen, but let's listen for God's word speaking to us this evening. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful." And let's pray. Heavenly Father, in this time, in this place, we invite you to speak. We thank you for your word that you give to us. We don't just want to hear it. We want your word to become part of us, to shape us, so that we can be doers of your word. We can live lives that don't waste the time that we have. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So this evening, we are really zeroing in on Simon, as this passage calls him, Simon known as the Zealot. Now, he was probably called the zealot for a couple of reasons. It may have simply been because he was passionate and energetic and enthusiastic, right? That's what zeal has to do with. But zeal is also something that is directed towards something, right? There's some sort of object or cause that the zeal is aiming at. 
And so he was also probably a part of the group of people known as the Zealots. Now, there was a formal party of the Zealots that would form many years later, but there were these people in Jesus' day who were Zealots. They were particularly zealous for Jewish nationalism. Right? Remember that Israel was occupied by the Roman Empire at this time. And so they weren't really autonomous. They had quite a bit of autonomy in their region, but not full autonomy, not full freedom. And so this group of people resented Roman occupation and really felt like the only one who should rule over them is God himself. And so they had this longing as they interpreted God's promises throughout the years of a Messiah who would come, who would set them free who would liberate them, who would come with strength and with power and would oust the Roman occupiers and would rebuild this conquering kingdom. Some of these zealots actually tried to kind of initiate it on their own. They weren't really patient for that Messiah to come. And so they would you know, plot and scheme and sometimes simply be opportunistic, willing to violently pursue their cause. Because they had this underlying belief that if only we can get rid of these Romans, then, then life will be all right. Then it'll be, everything will work out. This is what makes life worth living. This is how life should be. And so they were zealous for their autonomy and would do whatever it would take at times. So this is what their zeal was aimed at. And the invitation just as we begin in this, this message is for you to consider, what are you zealous for? What is it that brings out the passion and the energy and the enthusiasm in your life? What is it directed towards? You know, it, some of us, it, it's towards sports and athletics, and if it can't be because we play it, it's what actually has us excited about life, and so we can't wait for the next opportunity to see it. We're, that's what fans are all about, right? Fanatics have all this zeal around their teams and their players and the energy that comes from that. Some are just living for the weekend, right? Like, okay, I'm, yep, I'm just trying to get through this work week so that I can get to whatever the weekend has in store. Because that's where life is really at. Or maybe it's going to grind through this season because there's that next vacation out on the horizon, the next place that you can go, the next experience that you can have that, man, that'll finally make life worth living. Lots of us spend much of our lives, some by design and some not, really living for our kids, and for our grandkids, that they're what makes life worth living for. And if, if they can launch and be okay, then, then life will be okay. Others are pursuing particular goals and success and significance. Others are looking simply for the love and the affection from maybe a particular person, that person, or maybe the person that you haven't even met yet. And we just have all of our energy channeled in these directions, maybe wanting and desperately grabbing for financial freedom, or maybe it's just control so that you don't have to be dependent on anybody else. 
And there's so many, I could just keep going and going and going. What is it that you're zealous for that really actually motivates you? What channels your passion and your enthusiasm, your drive and your energy? This is what you're living for. Because Simon was living for this dream of autonomy. And one of, the, one of the things about examining our zeal is to recognize that many of these things that we would live for or that make life worth living won't actually satisfy in the end. There's a, a whole series of movies, the Creed movies, if you're familiar with them. They're the sequel to the Rocky series. It's actually really a, a great sequel. That's not always the case, and it's a trilogy. And, and in Creed 2, we get some of the champion, Adonis Creed's story a little further. Right? He actually had grown up with this in a really rough background. His father had, had actually died boxing in the ring, and he was really abandoned into foster care and had these terrible situations growing up. And so he learned to fight at an early age. He fought to survive. He fought to protect himself. He fought to make life okay. He fought to fill the hole that he had inside of him. And he felt like boxing, that is, is what, how it's going to happen. This is what makes life worth living for, getting to the top of the mountain. And so, of course, at the end of Creed 1, this is a spoiler, but it's been out for years. You should have seen this, and you probably saw it come. He, he becomes champion of the world, right? Shocker, I know. But at the beginning of Creed 2, he's champion. He has the belt. Everything that he had been driving for, striving for, longing for, working for, all of his zeal directed toward, he has it all, and he has this conversation with his mom where his mother says, you know, you became the world champ without your father. And Adonis responds to her, he says, why doesn't it feel like it then? And she said, if your father were here, he'd tell you it didn't feel like it for him either. Man, I think they've grabbed something profound, these writers, in this, this story. So often when we get the thing that we long for, it doesn't ultimately satisfy the zeal that has been poured out for years and years, perhaps, perhaps wasted in one direction, because when we grab it, it doesn't give us what we hoped. We don't feel like it, the champion, even though perhaps we are. And so Simon has this longing for liberation and autonomy. And Jesus knows that even if he gets it, it won't satisfy. <laughs> he knows this because you can look through the entire history of God's people when they were autonomous. They were wasting their life. They were wasting it in all sorts of directions, worshiping all sorts of other gods, hoarding for themselves whatever they could gather, forgetting the purpose that God had made them for, and that was to show the world what God is like. See, the people that, that Jesus called to himself, these 12, and the people of God before them and after them were really always called to God, not just for our relationship with God, not just so that we can experience his love, but if you are a follower of Jesus, it's to make him known to the world. You're the visible presence of God on earth. Not that you are God, 
But your purpose is to show the world what God is like, the God who is changing you, shaping you, guiding you, leading you, who loves you. And the people of God had forgotten throughout their history, right, that they were made to really reflect the heart of God in the world. And this is what Jesus gets at in this passage, right? We had the list of the 12 apostles, and then we get this huge teaching from Jesus. This is in Luke, obviously. It's known as the Sermon on the Plain because he was on a mountainside, and then he came down to a plain, you know, pretty, pretty helpful. And it's very similar to the sermon that he gave in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. But this huge chunk of teaching that really reflects what the heart of God is like, what life living in his kingdom, living, living in his purposes, what it's supposed to look like. And man, it was then and is now a beautiful, compelling, majestic, glorious, challenging, difficult heart-wrenching, convicting picture of life. I mean, blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. I mean, just already right from the beginning begins to hurt our brain because that doesn't make sense. No, blessed are the rich and the wealthy and the powerful because that's what makes life worth living. And then he just keeps going. And I didn't even include all of the Beatitudes, which that's what that is, a Beatitude. But he goes on and he, and he talks about you're intended to bless and not curse. That life is, is not about defending yourself. If somebody slaps you on a cheek, turn the other. How easy would that be? Somebody takes from you your coat, give them your shirt. Don't, don't try to defend yourself. Man, so much, I think so much of our life now is about defending ourselves. I mean, defend ourselves in, in all sorts of ways. Defending ourselves from the other, from those over there, the people we disagree with, from the people who really are attacking you, perhaps persecuting you, bullying you, whatever the answer is. There's this sense that we got to put a cocoon around ourselves and protect ourselves. And Jesus is like, really, defending yourself isn't what it's all about. It's this radical way of grace and mercy and love and forgiveness. See, we often think that life is worth living when I'm protected and comfortable and secure and safe from all of those problems that are out there. That's, that's good life. And it often happens because I can get, and I, I can get, and I can build up for myself this hedge of protection, this wall of security, and then I'll have around me those people who love me. And I'll love them too. Doesn't that sound like a beautiful life? And Jesus just blows up our picture completely. And he, he says it's to bless not to curse. It's to give, not to get. It's, if you love only those who love you, what credit is that to you? Sinners do that. 
If you give to people who are going to give to you, if you lend to those who are going to pay you back, if, if you care about those who care about you, really, there's nothing special or different about you. That's how the world lives. To reflect my heart, Jesus is saying, to reflect the heart of God and his kingdom, to live a life that's worth living is to live this really weird thing, this weird picture that Jesus painted that is glorious and majestic and beautiful and compelling and draws us in and we go, yeah, I can't do that. And here's Simon, the zealot, listening to this teaching about loving your enemy, forgiveness, turning the other cheek. Remember, he comes from this party that had violent undertones, if not overtones. He's called together in this group of 12 with one of the other 12 named Matthew. We haven't talked about Matthew yet, but just real quick, a little piece of Matthew's story. Matthew was a tax collector, which means he worked for the Roman government, and he was extorting his own people. So the way he made money was he taxed his own Jewish people, he charged them the Roman taxes, and then he skimmed some extra off the top for himself. And so, in other words, he was stealing from his own people. How do you think Simon felt about Matthew's occupation? I think there may have been some tensions in the room when the conversation of Romans came up. What do you think? And the violent tendencies of the zealots, they were known to take out their own people, not just the Romans, those that they thought were traitors, those that they thought had turned. Well, that would, that would apply to Matthew. And it would have been so easy for Simon to just listen to this stuff coming from Jesus and be like, yeah, but he doesn't deserve it. He doesn't deserve my forgiveness. He doesn't deserve mercy. He's a traitor. Can you believe what he's done? He's stealing from his own people. I mean, he had all the reasons that we can often think of in our own lives of why we won't and can't and don't extend grace, forgiveness, mercy. You ever said, yeah, but they don't deserve it. You ever thought it? I mean, there's people in all of our lives that have hurt us deeply. And Jesus doesn't say the hurt's not real. But he's saying if you want to reflect the heart of God in the world and what it looks like to live a life that's worth living, then have your zeal channeled toward grace and mercy toward those who don't deserve it. So what we know didn't happen is we know Simon did not murder Matthew. So that's good. Because they're both there later in Acts when they gather after Jesus' resurrection. So something changed for Simon between being called as the zealot and somewhere along the way. Something changed. What do you think changed? Because... We can all hear this teaching from Jesus, and it's easy with the teaching. We know lots of things in our life that we should do, but we don't do them. I mean, I won't make you raise your hand and start telling, but I can just say that with confidence. 
that for every one of us in this room, there are things that you know you should do that are good for you, that are right. And yet we have an ability to justify not doing them. And often in the name of something really good, right, we'll justify and we'll make it sound really, really good which would have been exactly what Simon would have done. Remember, his passion was for the Lord God to rule only. And so it makes sense. Take out all the traitors so that God can rule only. Doesn't that sound so righteous? But he didn't justify. See, he had an encounter with not just the teaching of Jesus, Because the teaching of Jesus alone isn't going to change our hearts. We know that. Because you know a lot of things and I know a lot of things that we should do. But just because I should do them doesn't mean it changes me. See, I think Simon had an experience of the teaching. Jesus ended his section here of what I chose. He said that... If you love your enemies and do good to them, then your reward will be great. You will be children of the Most High. Now, here's the key, though, of what he experienced. Because God is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. I think what will change our approach to people the people we refuse to forgive, that we're harboring things against, that even we're just fomenting the pain rather than letting it heal within us, the thing that will begin to change us is not knowing that we should forgive them, and it's not even knowing that it's better for you to forgive them. I've heard that argument too. Oh, no, no, you're the only one you're hurting by not forgiving. That may be true, but that also hasn't caused you to forgive, has it? What will begin to move us and change us is an experience of the reality that I am the ungrateful and wicked that God is kind to. That I am the one that was in need of mercy. That in my zeal for all sorts of other things in life that I think will make it worth living, I have abandoned that first love of God himself. I have wasted so much time going the wrong direction. And God, instead of allowing me to continue to simply wander lost, sent his son Jesus, who didn't just tell us how to live. He then lived it for us. He lived the loving self-sacrifice that was required for my forgiveness. He took on the wickedness and the ingratitude. He took it on the cross. He took my waywardness. He took my zeal that was misplaced. He endured it on the cross so that I could receive the mercy of God and know that I am that loved. (laughs) See, that's what Simon, I think, experienced as he was with Jesus. And as he experienced the reality of this mercy, he could begin to look at Matthew 
through eyes that had been transformed by the experience of the love of God, and he could begin to offer mercy and forgiveness to him. Because compared to my rejection of God, (laughs) I'm pretty sure that the hurt that has been done to me is almost nothing. But I have to experience healing and love and grace and mercy before I can offer it really to anyone else. And so Jesus changed Simon's heart. Not just by telling him the way to live, but by living it for him and then inviting Simon and the 12 and you and me to reclaim the purpose for which we were made, to take our zeal and our enthusiasm and our passion and our energy and then to channel it once again to represent the heart of God in the world. That's what we just commissioned Will to do. It's not just a commissioning when you go off to college. It's a commissioning every day of your life, everyone you interact with. Erwin McManus is a pastor and an author, and he wrote a book called The Barbarian Way, and he tells a a story in it about a time when he was visiting Scotland, and he was in this little church, and he heard a story that was told by a Scottish pastor named James Pettigrew. And the story was about Robert the Bruce, famous nobleman, Scottish nobleman, that ultimately led Scotland in its revolution against England to to freedom. Well, Robert the Bruce died in 1329 at the age of 44. And as the story went, shortly before his death, Robert the Bruce requested that his heart actually be removed from his body and then taken on a crusade by a worthy knight. Now, one of his closest friends, James Douglas, was there at his bedside and took on the responsibility. And so actually when Robert the Bruce died, they took his heart, they embalmed it, and then put it in a small container that Douglas wore around his neck. And so in every battle he went into, Douglas fought literally carrying the heart of his king against his chest. Well, in the early spring of 1330, in the midst of an ill-fated battle, Douglas found that he was surrounded to the point that it was clear he was going to die. And in that moment, he took the heart out of the container that he had been wearing, and he threw it into the midst of his enemies and yelled out, fight for the heart of your king. One historian actually quoted Douglas as saying, Forward, brave heart, as ever thou were want, want to do, and Douglas will follow his king's heart or die. And McManus adds, if we have responded to the call of Jesus to leave everything and follow him, then there is a voice within us crying out, fight for the heart of your king. And the zealots thought they were fighting for the heart of their king. They just, they had it all wrong. They forgot that the weapons of this king and this kingdom 
were not the weapons of warfare, but the weapons of love and self-sacrifice, the love of mercy and grace and forgiveness. This, these are the weapons that will transform the heart of humanity. This will transform our relationships. This will transform the world that is so divided and broken among us. And you are called as a follower of Jesus to channel your zeal, to fight for the heart of your king, to live a life worth living for. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for, for the beauty and, and the glory of your kingdom. And we acknowledge that to, to represent you and your heart is so hard and we are, certainly within us, we are still torn apart that we're still holding on to bitterness and we're still labeling enemies and we're still harboring hardness rather than offering grace and forgiveness. And so, Lord, may you give each and every one of us the eyes to see how much of our lives we have wasted. Give us eyes to see how Jesus took on that wasteland took on our rebellion and our ingratitude and our wickedness on the cross. That that's what forgiveness cost. And yet you gave it freely. You loved us that thoroughly. Lord, may we too be transformed by an experience of what you've taught. That we can fight for the heart of our King every day. In Jesus' name, amen. My heart, my life is yours, Jesus. Let's stand and praise together.